I don't think Gary Becker is a particularly iconic looking guy, is he? I mean, who else do you pick from the economist pantheon as a recognizable figure? Here's the thing you, you figure out when you're going through making an economic consulting website. There isn't a lot of good symbols to choose. There's a supply and demand curve, but how far can you really take that? <laughs> you know? Dude, you could do so much. Ski hills. That's that's just one of many ideas that you can <laughs> ski, ski so hills. Other uh, mounds that you can go over. Like a like I don't know like a Mario scene or something like. This this will be a part of the cold open. Let's start with utility. I don't understand what it even means. Everybody has some kind of utils in their head that they're calibrating. There's hardly anything that hasn't been used for money. In fact, there may be a fundamental problem in modeling that we don't want to model. Welcome to episode one of the Game Economist cast. I am Phil at a Game Economist Consulting, which is a invisible company until today. Hopefully when this cast is releasing, everything has come together. Formerly Amazon Game Studios, Dice, as well as Scopely. I am joined by two amazing co-hosts who have a lot to share. And I believe I can introduce you as Dr. Smith. Is that something we can do this week? See, I don't know because actual academic people from the university have been like, congratulations, doctors. And I'm like, oh, cool. But I technically haven't walked or gotten my degree. It won't happen for another two weeks. I don't know. I'm just going to say it, yeah. I think it's fine. Can you operate on a patient? Well, I told my friends, I was like, I don't like you guys impersonating a doctor. So you need to call yourself physicians for the ones who have an MD or a DO degree. You're not president yet. You're president elect. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like that. I did the hard part. And now I can just sit back and relax. Well, get back to work. Like, now my weekends are free. So welcome to the cast, Dr. Smith. Do you mind telling us a little bit about who you are and where you're from? Where I'm from, I'm from the U.S., but mostly the Midwest. I've spent a lot of my time. Where I come from, I did my undergraduate in economics, and I went straight into a PhD program in economics at Purdue. And during my time there, I got involved with game economics, the same way that gets involved with drugs in like high school. I've pretty much been doing that ever since. There's always a gateway drug into this weird subdiscipline. Right now I'm at Star Atlas or Automata, working on their giant space MMORPG. Trying to bring the Star Citizen kind of elite dangerous type of experience into Web3. Hailing from the great state of Illinois. I'm Eric, working at Superlayer, doing kind of Web3 economy design. X-Riot, where I cut my teeth. Yeah, math and econ like these folks, but uh, probably the least accredited. I'm, I'm just a plebeian bachelor. No, um, not true at all. Not true at all. I've, I've seen I've seen your tweets. Yeah. Those are but, tweets of a seasoned game industry veteran. Yeah, it's seven years at Riot. You kind of see all sides of the industry. But uh, yeah, I love love game economics. I think I got into it just from the the Yana Kupis. Yeah, the the guy I, I don't know how to pronounce his name. The TF2 guy was the first Giannis, of it. Giannis. Giannis. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's many of our gateway drugs. And I was like, oh, this is like a thing. And I was like, oh, you can take games that I love and do all sorts of data stuff with them. Okay, this is awesome. And uh, here I am. And for you, Chris, did you come through Edward Castronova? He's the big name in academia for this, for, for game econ. He seems to have the most papers. Yeah. So I was going to say, if I, if you guys have Giannis as your gateway drug, I would say probably Ted is my is my gateway drug. He ended up on my PhD committee, which was really cool. We, we ended up writing a paper together. So Kind of has to be him. And uh, yeah, I've got ton, tons of respect for the, those like old guard guys. And now I've heard from Ted, it's like, hey, it's, it's in your guys' hand now. Like, go uh, continue, the, continue the fight for game economics. Well, hopefully you can send him this podcast. I think that gets us at least one guest appearance by him if he was encouraging you. 
I, I, think be, I think he'd be up for it. We could definitely convince him to come on. This guest list is already getting full. I think we have three seasons worth of guests already. Or at least at three seasons then. Three seasons and a four, no, four seasons in a movie. Six seasons in a movie. I got my franchises mixed up. That last season, that sixth season was pretty bad of community. Oof. Yeah, as soon as Pierce went. We have three articles to talk about today. We have three beautiful articles to talk about, or at least something approaching articles. I will be talking about a piece I wrote on Marvel Snap, doing some shameless promotion for a game that I've been obsessed with and a topic that I continue to write about. It's torturing me. I need to, I need to crank out these two other pieces. When you find you, you write these pieces and they start to expand and expand and then you break them into subparts, it's not a good idea. You think it's a smart commitment device, but it's not. It's just a torture chamber for yourself. Eric, what are you going to be talking about today? We can talk about Skyweavers, talk about the trends in Web3 games, right? It used to be like play to earn and now they're like, talk. everyone's talking about stability, but I think they're overshooting in the wrong direction. So we'll check out a little bit about Skyweavers. And Chris, is there a dissertation chapter in our future? We would be remiss not to chat about my second chapter of my dissertation, which focuses on basically video game firm behavior. So it's kind of an IO problem. We'll, we'll explore the gambit of different industry models. And I would say, I think there's almost too much going on in crypto to talk about it this week, but I definitely think in the future, we'll be spending a lot more time with crypto. All three of us are involved in crypto in some way. Eric, you've made the full leap over to Web3 from Web2. Chris, you just you just dove straight into Web3. I'm somewhere in between. I'm working with both clients. It's a very strange place. Hopefully, none of the listeners know that we are fanatics. Would you describe our, our Web3 positions as sensible, sane, hopeful, sober, confused, sober, sober? I think that's the great way to put it. A sober yep. Web3 group. We spend a lot of time critiquing our arguments about the costs and benefits of Web3 relative to Web2. With that being said, let's dive in. Got a selection of good things on sale, stranger. I just wonder if I should have my diagrams with boxes and arrows. Oh man, that, that would take us cast to a whole nother level. Wow. Any sort of diagram with arrows and stuff, people love that shit. They're like, like, and actually I love it too. It helps me visualize. Anytime I get a GDD, I just start doing diagrams. I can't keep all this in my head. It's almost as if the process of making the diagram is more important than the end of the diagram. I, th I think you really have to discipline your thinking when you make diagrams, which is a perfect segue into Marvel Snap, which I did a lot of diagramming for. So I published a piece on Marvel Snap trying to really just talk about the monetization of Marvel Snap. As a summary, when you think about where Marvel Snap has been, it comes from a studio of former Blizzard employees. Hamilton Chu, who is the CEO of Second Dinner, was an executive producer on Hearthstone. And Ben Brode, who is the chief development officer at Second Dinner, was the design director on Hearthstone. And these two, I think, were really responsible for making Hearthstone the juggernaut that it is today. It's been in development for about four years. And surprisingly, it was only in soft launch for six months. It was an incredibly quick soft launch. It looks like they just got the KPIs that they needed to read. I don't think monetization was one of them. Perhaps they were just testing for retention. That's pretty common these days. And does anyone know where the, where they spent the six months? Was it a tier tier one or tier two or tier three country? No, no. idea. And it's almost always like Australia or Canada. Well, Sweden Sweden's a nice tier two represent. Yeah, but apparently Australia and Canada are big spenders. That's interesting. Do do you run into any like sampling bias biases? Tons because of this. Tons, and I would say it's an unexplored problem. I would say it's ill-defined, and I've been disappointed that data scientists have not gotten more involved in it. I think they specifically choose countries that are similar to target demographics, Canada for U.S. or Australia for the Western world in general. And you don't need to do localization. So you don't have to think about language. 
Everyone speaks oh. English. Dingo ate my baby. Is that English, Eric? Let's localize. Yeah, anyway. So it was only about six months in soft launch before Marvel Snap ended up going worldwide. So far, the metrics, and I think, what is this, after maybe about a month, six weeks after launch, is looking at about probably around 8 million downloads. Interestingly enough, they published this with ByteDance of TikTok fame rather than Netties. And Netties was a strategic investor in Second Dinner, so rather strange. And if we had some news today that Blizzard has broken up with Netties in China. So they will not be able to publish games for Blizzard in China. And of course, you need a license in China to be able to sell games. There's a very limited ability to sell games in China. And so without that, Blizzard is going to be without a very large revenue stream. So we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but I find it pretty interesting that NetEase is also an investor in Second Dinner. Got a rumor for you. Is that I heard that breakup was hot and messy. Like it was not a planned, executed thing. There was some kind of negotiation where they could not see eye to eye. So not a strategic move. Salt on both sides, yeah. Okay. Okay. Some some high emotions. Where do you get your where do you guys get the, the traditional industry like juice? TMZ.gamer.com. What was that? TMZ.gamer.com. That's not a that's not a real website. Oh. <laughs> now I want to know what comes out of TMZ.gamer.com. Nothing. Bummer. So it looks like a a messy breakup with Netties and Blizzard, which makes this strategic investment in Second Dinner, which was years ago they invested, all that more interesting. But they ended up publishing Marvel Snap, not with NetEase, but with ByteDance. And I assume, again, this relates back to the expansion into China that I'm sure they're hiring, as well as making sure that they have the license to even be able to operate Marvel Snap in China. Although I'm not quite sure how, how Marvel has done in China. I know Matthew Ball has some research out there. It'll be interesting to see how the IP resonates with that audience. But six, six, eight million downloads probably so far, and it's hard to get good numbers on active users. We only really get installs that are direct from the first-party publishers, App Annie, Data AI, whatever you'd like to call it. A lot of those are estimates when you look at active user numbers, so I'm a little bit skeptical of that. So I decided to take a look, at least for this article, at SteamDB, which does report actuals straight out of Steam. And we can see a very nice early PSU stacking chart. So player simultaneous users continues to increase day over day over day. And that is a good sign. That means that they are retaining at a higher rate than they are churning players. Let's see what happens when the UA funnel drops off. That is always the moment of truth for these games. When you pull back on spend, are the downloads still there? Can the brand carry you forward? Have you built up a large enough DAU war chest to be able to monetize in the future? But so far, things look good from an early engagement perspective. But I think this is right where we get into the meat and potatoes, at least of my argument, which is that Marvel Snap, to me, they tried to reinvent the wheel when it comes to monetization in a way that didn't appear to be necessary. One of the things I do in the article is spend some time working backwards from how you spend money into the game to finally how you actually end up getting value out of the game. And so when you end up going through that process, one of the things you find is that there's a core economy loop in Marvel Snap that really revolves around three components. And those three components are to be able to collect cards, variants, character boosters. And then once you collect those cards, variants, or character boosters, you frame break the cards or you cosmetically upgrade them in exchange for some currency. And so by frame breaking, you then get collection points. And those collection points contribute to what is almost an account level progression system, an account level reward track. The more collection points you earn, the higher up the track you move the higher up the track you move, the more cards you get. So there are a variety of rewards on that track. 
but most notably that seems to be the exclusive place in which Marvel Snap new cards are sourced. If you're a player and you're not so much interested in the cosmetics of frame breaking, it just adds a small cosmetic effect around the border of the card, it might be animated. They have a 3D view, which is interesting. So if you were to tilt your camera, it almost looks like the card has a 3D effect. So they have these very small cosmetic effects. But if you're not interested in that, then the only thing they really have in terms of progression is you frame breaking. So even if you're not interested in cosmetics, you need to frame break. You need to frame bake to be able to get the new cards. That is the primary vector in which you level up. And so my issue with Marvel Snap's monetization so much isn't that framework so much as it is, that seems like a rather strange way to source cards to players. So one of the things that I think we learned in Clash Royale is just really the power of marginalization or modularization. So if you have a really high value item in a game economy and you need to break up the value and parcel it out, almost make it more fungible if we were to take a word from the crypto universe. If we were to make it more fungible, then what you do is you shard it. So if I, for instance, have 100 shards of a particular item, I might not be able to realize that item or to summon it or to cast it or to make it real. This felt like it would have been a better way for Marvel Snap to distribute cards rather than having this single reward track with kind of these intermediate releases. And what this also does is it lets you back into loot boxes, which is something that I feel is sorely missed in Marvel Snap. And almost to the detriment of the players, because Marvel Snap does randomly source you cards. When you go into your reward track and you've collected enough collection points and you go to get one of those core cards in your collection levels, that is a random card. Not only that, but when you're at the end of a round in Marvel Snap, when you're at the end of a match and you're collecting your booster XP, that goes to a random card in your deck. So they have these loot boxes in the game. They're just not showing you the animations for it. And I just find it really hard to believe that a team that spent so much time on animation and production quality, which is just absolutely off the charts in this game. Every card has an animation. I find it very strange that this team would not put in loot boxes into the game or put in a loot box animation as an oversight. It feels like a purposeful decision to avoid the wrath of Reddit. And this was something that happened in Softlaunch. They had this Nexus event, which was a high stakes loot box event. And again, they didn't have sharding. So you were either getting the card or you were not getting the card. So it's a very, very high risk. So any given box just has a really low probability of you getting the card when you open it. So they ran this event. They had a lot of community ear, a lot of community backlash against it. I think the question when you end up in this situation is always, did you get the price wrong or did you get the mechanic wrong? If you go back, for instance, to Apex Season 1, there was a lot of anger at Apex's Battle Pass. Was it the Battle Pass or was it the Battle Pass being too hard? And so I think those are things you have to really think about and consider when you are met with backlash in the community is looking past what they're saying to what they mean. And so this to me was a very strange outcome is for them to take away the lesson that, hey, we aren't just going to do this anymore. I'd say the other thing is the price was rather high for these cards. It was about $400, someone had calculated on Reddit. Again, I hadn't verified that independently, but about $400 to get a card. To get a card? $400 to get a card during the Nexus event. So they had two cards available, $400. And were they like very powerful cards that were exclusive to the event? Or yeah, why... So you think about these cards, a lot of them are supposed to be horizontal, right? They're supposed to be horizontal in the sense that one isn't intrinsically better than the other. And you can achieve that in game design by altering the mana cost, right? Now, of course, like that doesn't always end up being the case at all, but that at least in many cases is the design intent. And I feel like this design intent here, but of course, whenever there's a new card, it is going to grant you some level of vertical progression if the card is useful. Like the, the cards should be useful. So these were useful cards. In some sense, it does increase your win probability, even though it isn't the intent of any one card to do so. 
And and they were exclusive to the event. They were exclusive to the event. I think we don't know a ton yet about how Marvel Snap will start to source these cards going forward to people who weren't a part of the event. They're not going to use the FOMO strategy. That would be rather strange for card game. But it looks like what they do is they put past cards that were in particular events into that collection level. So you get a future probability of getting it when you get to that particular place in your leveling track. And of course, like that brings in a whole host of implications. That to me is the problem is that when you start to move away from Clash Royale's design, you have to reverse engineer all these things that that system solved into your mechanic. This is one of the dangers of not taking an off-the-shelf solution and really, I think, focusing on where your innovation is. And to me, the innovation in this game was clear. They made a card game that could be played in under three minutes with an incredible level of strategic depth. I think it's really cool that they innovated on monetization. To your point, it is risky. Like It's always riskier to innovate on the monetization than it is on the game design itself. I'm glad they did it as an observer. If I were in-house, I don't know if I'd recommend that. But I think what you said about the loot boxes uh, or the lack thereof is 100% true. The, this this is a group of ex-Riot, ex-Blizzard devs who like are very concerned about positive player monetization. They're always trying to stay ahead of the curve. When Hearthstone launched, it was seen as a very player-friendly monetization. Today, it's seen as very like extractive and loot box-based, right? And that's just because the times always change and what is friendly or not friendly is always... like Battle Pass, I think, is going through this right now where like they're starting to seem extractive and exploitive and everywhere. I think you're 100% right there that they avoided specifically showing a chest open up and a bunch of lights come out, right? They specifically avoided that because they didn't wanted to avoid the stigma of loot boxes. But the fact of the matter is random content distribution is a very effective way to do it. It's a very effective way to take a large pool of content and divvy it out in a way that feels better than the a la carte. And yeah, so... Ultimately, it is. Do you see that as a problem, though? Like, this is what I always go back to. If we just find and replace any loot box conversation with the words card packs, it's a mechanic that's been around as long as Pokemon has been around, and it's never been a problem. It's never been a problem until it started entering some AAA video games, and certain internet communities were outraged by that. That's the thing I've always stumbled on is, what's the difference between a loot box and a card pack? And I have never had someone explain that to me because they don't seem to be able to Reddit, Twitter, the active gamer communities. They don't seem to challenge these things. I mean, what's the difference between amphetamines and coffee? It's like a lot of like, do you, do you think it's a degree? Do you think it's a, it's a matter of degree? No, I, I think it's different. And this is going to make me sound like a really like huge crypto person. But when card packs were around, you could, there was a secondary market for them. So you like opened it up and then you could, you had the option to go and actually just buy the card you were looking for. So the card packs really are like, they're for a, in my opinion, they're for a particular style of game. So in Magic the Gathering, they're designed for, they're designed for drafts and not constructed. If you want to play constructed, you have this outside option. You have this other option. You don't have to go buy $5,000 worth of packs to get a $500 deck. You can just go to the secondary marketplace and buy that $500 deck because you're using the aggregation of all these cards within that community. Versus in a video game, you don't have that option to go aggregate all these resources. That's where I think you're wrong, Dr. Smith. And here's and here's why. FIFA Ultimate Team is the most successful game in many regards in the West. It goes out and every single year, FIFA will sell a bunch of copies and it is FIFA Ultimate Team. It's the segmented mode in FIFA that has more free-to-play-like mechanics in it versus the mainline FIFA. And so that has a secondary marketplace in it. That still gets some of the most criticism out of any single game product out there. And so I don't think the auction house is really 
an eligible complaint. And I would add the I would add the secondary issue is that when we see games that do have loot boxes in them, they generally have some sort of pity timer, right? So Hearthstone has this. I think it's a 20 card pack without a legendary, you'll get one. Some games are even stronger in how they control probability. If you remember Overwatch, if you open up enough loot boxes, you would get crafting currency. That crafting currency could be used to directly purchase any item you wanted at various prices. And so even with those mechanics in it, it doesn't seem to have stopped any complaints from these communities. I know FIFA has the online marketplace for the players. I'm not, a, I'm not super familiar with that, but is there any other... And there's no card game that's ever done it, except for like Magic Gathering Online. But that's just like a... Artifact tried. Uh, Artifact uh, tried out of the Web 2 world. That was, that was Valve's failed game. Oh, okay. Rip Artifact. So you think it's purely cultural? You think it's purely like a, or a psychological... You know, so th- like- this, this, will be, this will be the agenda I will push on this podcast, is that I, I think we have to be very careful on how we think about community. The word community to me is always used improperly in games. Really what we mean when we use the word community in the contexts we use it is we mean social media. That is a very particular slice of your audience that engages. And I would say developers have grown more and more interested in engaging in social media. It's very vocal. It's very fast. It's all the things we talk about with social media. And it's really affected how we start to make games. And I think we've started to make worse and worse choices to appeal to this particular audience rather than trying to judge the health of the game. And to me, the health of the game is ultimately what generates the most value for the entire player base, not just a small section. Probably we might talk about this later. It's about the, it's about the marginal player. Vocal players are the most, literally, we write this for a TED, the most vocal players are the ones whose needs and wants are never met because they're always going to be, they're either always going to be there or they're not going to be because they're on the very far ends of the distribution. You care about the people in the middle. I guess when I say community, maybe I should come up with a new word, player base. And the community is like this loud, like fringes and then player base chunk of the distribution that you actually care about. Back to the loot box point. So I think there's a few factors at play. One is the degree to which it's like a jackpot lottery style system versus horizontal. So if you look at uh, gashapons in Japan, right, those like capsule machines, right? You like put in a quarter, you turn the crank, you get a random toy. There's not like scarcity and oh one of these toys is worth a hundred dollars and the rest of them are worthless right they're all just some cheap piece of plastic that's a little bit of fun and because there isn't that jackpot winner loser situation like that's less gambly whereas if you have one super valuable ultra rare ultra exclusive chase item that increases that sort of like gambling component so i think to use it so to you is it just a question of what are the rewards in the pool like that, uh, if we could draw a correlation between the rewards in the pool, the drop rates of those rewards, and let's say the community, or I would say social media pushback, would that be a testable hypothesis? I think so, yeah. Uh, I I'll mean, push you on this. I, I'm not saying it's the only factor. I'm just saying it's a big one, though. So, for example, when Magic the Gathering introduced Mythics, I'm sure this increased the loot boxiness of their card backs. Before they only had common, uncommon, rare, they added an extra tier of rarity which are even rarer, even more expensive on the open market. My explanation for what I see when I see a lot of active gamer social media types engage in monetization is that there's a public choice explanation for this. That's at least where my headspace has been, that this is an interest group. And really, we should start to think about this, not necessarily from a strictly economics background, but a political science economics background, a public choice background, is that there are interest groups And these interest groups have agendas, and they're trying to promote their agenda. And one of the ways that they can promote their agenda is through low-cost action in numbers. I would say a lot of things that have come out of modern social media 
to me have been engineered first by gamers. I don't know if we've ever gotten, I don't know if the gamer community has ever gotten credit for, I think, some of these tactics. And for better or for worse, it really depends on what the ends are. But I think a lot of them have been engineered in games. And so it, to me, I, I look towards public choice. I'd like to see a richer theory of this, a richer theory of community and what this is. Because remember, we don't see this in mobile. We don't see a lot of, I think, pushback in mobile, or at least the pushback isn't as paid as much attention to in mobile as it is in HD. That's been a pretty sharp line that I've seen throughout my career. It's got to be an information thing, right? So to me, I've always thought, I've always seen free-to-play as basically a better monetization strategy than premium models because it allows you to more perfectly price discriminate against your consumers. But that only works in a in an environment where there's not a lot of information transfer between consumers. So if I'm playing Candy Crush on my phone, or maybe Genshin Impact or something like that, and I don't tell other people about it, it's not a part of my personality the way that playing FIFA or playing Apex is. I'm much more vocal with those people. They know exactly how much I'm paying. I know exactly how much they're paying. Whereas within this like little phone app, these free-to-play environments, there's a lot less information transfer. Maybe you're spending a lot. Maybe you're not spending a lot. I don't know. Does that seem... I think that's right. If I have a shitty experience in a game on PC, you tab over to Reddit, make a big rant about it. If you're on mobile, you're like, oh, well, that sucked. Like time to go back to brushing my teeth or whatever. Yeah. So you would think of it almost as a barrier to entry explanation. So basically the cost of complaining is cheaper on PC because you're on the same medium in which the negative experience is happening and what you'll post in versus mobile. I see it more as like, for example, you could think of a model where the joy that somebody gets out of a game has to do with the number of people that are playing that game with them. So there's this like connection, there's this warm glow from the game. Uh, and basically with these free-to-play mobile games, that the model doesn't include that, that warm glow effect. So there's no, there's no benefit of playing with my friends, mainly because they're single player. That's a kind of the first, that's the most obvious empirical thing you could touch is the fact that free-to-play mobile games, there's no, not that I know of, there's no like real multiplayer versus going you're playing Rocket League or something like that and you're together with your friends. To me, it's more about that than necessarily like the, maybe like a cost or something. And on that oh. point, the communities with the more vibrant social media bandwagoning or whatever are the online multiplayer ones, right? People aren't freaking out over God of War nearly as much as they are over Rocket League or League of Legends or whatever. But that's yeah. because the monetization doesn't exist there. If you go back, for instance, and you look at, God, I remember when I was at DICE, Ghost shipped, I think it was Need for Speed Payback, which was the last Need for Speed to have loot boxes in it. Predominantly a single player game. If you were to look at, let's say, share of hours spent in single player versus multiplayer, still a ton of pushback loot boxes during that period. That was actually pre-Battlefront 2. I think a lot of people forget about that one. That one little snuck under the rug a little bit before Battlefront 2. I think that's another interesting case of people pushing back. I'm sure Ubisoft has done loot boxes in Assassin's Creed. I'm not up to date on that <laughs> franchise. I'd still concede to you, Eric. I, I would agree there's a positive correlation between, let's say, community chatter about monetization and whether or not the game is single player and the size of the player base. That makes a lot of sense to me. What I'm hearing basically is that you need to consider who's on the intensive margin and who's on the extensive margin. Who are the people that you're actually talking about? And who's the, who are the people actually playing the game? Like, no, the people who are playing Candy Crush are not the types of people who care about I saw a statistic one. The average mobile gamer is actually a woman in her middle age. Right? It makes a hell of a lot of sense. These people are, they're, they're not complaining about like $10. They don't really care. Like to them, they would go out to dinner or they would go do this. This is just one of those other things. Whereas there's a completely different sample. It's a completely different universe. There's two types here. Like studying the labor market, 
you don't want to include unemployed people in your wage gap regressions, for example, or something like that, because you're getting improper sampling. You have to be on the intensive margin studying those employed people. The other people are a different type, they're a different group. Uh, and that's why we see these dramatic differences in reaction because there's two different groups of people. I think to your point, Chris, track the metric, track the metrics, track the size of the response relative to your player base. When you start to look at these Reddit communities or Steam or Twitter, and you take them as the numerator and your player base as the denominator, it's a small relative share. That is a metric that analysts need to be delivering to teams is helping you put all of this in context. Because it is very scary to have a tab open on Chrome, as all developers do, that is to the subreddit of your game, and a lot of angry players in all capital letters are saying nasty things. Scary place to be as a developer. Article number two. Do it. Uh, Skyweavers, relevant to loot box and card game discussion. It's a Web3 card game. The marketplace is built in. It's kind of in that Magic Online vein where all the cards you earn are supposed to be tradable. There are actually no purchased loot boxes. When you level up, you get a random new card. But when you buy cards, you buy them from the open market. That's the primary place to buy them. So it adds a bunch of determinism there, avoids that gambling aspect, which is cool. You can tell this game is a backlash to some of the more like high volatility Web3 games. Axie Infinity is probably the poster child of this, where prices went straight up and then straight down. And I'll talk about some of the systems that accomplish this, but um, yeah, other than that, it's a solid, polished card game. So it's kind of like Hearthstone, a lot more stuff going on. So like it's more involved, more like you have to re- there's a lot more card text and sub abilities and that kind of stuff. But overall, I've been having a good time with it. You can tell the game was well designed, made these people know what they're doing. Uh, let me go and compare and contrast their economies real quick. Axie was the previous big wave of the uh, poster child for Web3 games are blowing up. And part of that was the price went super high, right? And One thing that caused Axie prices to go up so high, I think, is how Axies are obtained. So Axies, they're the pets, but you can think of them like cards. To get, to produce another Axie in the ecosystem, you have to own an Axie, two Axies, you have to breed them. Breeding requires some sort of in-game currency, and then they produce another Axie, some random combination of their genetic traits, and then that Axie you can sell. And so the, if let's say like bird Axies are very strong right now, right? People both want the bird axes to play because if you have them, you're more likely to win. If you're more likely to win, you're more likely to earn, right? So there's they essentially pay out dividends. But you also need the bird axes to breed more bird axes. So if bird axes are strong, there's a crunch on two fronts. One is just the direct usage, the first order usage, and the, another crunch on the second order usage of I want more bird axes to breed more bird axes to sell to the market. And so I think this magnifies the up and down trends of any price fluctuation, right? If we think this card is going to be strong, then you know it, it pays higher dividends from play, but it also the breeding value is much higher. And so I think this kind of accentuated all the up and down curves. To me, it seems like you're actually, so I totally get this like over the market, over just completely overreacting to, to a good card because of the double effect. But to me, it's like once you are, once that breeding process has started, it should mitigate some of that because all of a sudden the market's flush with a bunch of these types of cards. Not the case. Or equilibrium, right? Prices, no. prices should law of one price in some sense. Yeah, that's true. But it, it takes some time for it to reach that equilibrium. If you look at Axie prices now, they're like rock bottom because people overinvested in breeding operations six months ago, and now there's just a giant surplus of Axies. I guess that would be a situation of people misaligning future expectations, like producing for a future that doesn't exist. 
Do you buy more of a, su a supply side explanation for axes though? If your reproduction rate for these axes is always above one, you can always breed. If I can take two axes and I can make technically an infinite amount of axes, right? Yeah. Well, you have to use SLP. So you have to pay to reproduce. There's, there's a cost. To there's it. also there's a limit to the number of times. Mm -hmm. There's methods where you take two and you take all the cousins and breed them together and you take all those cousins and you breed them together. The economy in Axie only had one macro lever to increase or decrease the aggregate amount of breeding, which would be the breeding currency. Pretty much, yeah. What does that mean for Skyweavers? The situation I imagine in Skyweavers, the problem I start to see with a lot of these crypto Web3 games is that they essentially have an uncapped amount of supply in some sense, right? Because the assets aren't degrading. It's not like a t-shirt. You wear a t-shirt a bunch, the capital naturally degrades, and we keep producing more t-shirts. There's some sort of equilibrium of t-shirts declining, being thrown out, and new ones being born into existence that satisfies the population. Feels like that isn't something that exists in any of these games, and that's a big problem. Yeah, so Skywarers actually has a very hard anchor here. All the cards that are produced, or most of them, are through this mode that's called Conquest. You can think of it like Arena if you played Hearthstone. You pay a buy-in. And based on your win loss, you may earn cards. But effectively, we can think of it as you pay a dollar fifty to open a random card. That's expected value. That's what happened. And so what that means is that if the expected market value of these cards is above a dollar fifty, it's profitable to play this mode, earn the cards, and sell them. So the expected value of the cards in the market cannot go above a dollar fifty. So there's almost like a price ceiling. Mm -hmm. And also there is a price floor because instead of paying a dollar fifty to enter this mode. You can also burn a card to enter this mode. So if any cards are cheaper than $1.50, you will buy them from the market, burn them to enter. And so it also puts a price floor. And so the variance on the range of these prices is going to be very narrowly constrained around $1.50. And so I can burn any card to get into the draft run. So I imagine what happens is that you're trying to mine for the most expensive card and you're trying to burn the least expensive cards. And so you'll burn through all the least ones. And so it's if you're trying to solve... So this is the other challenge, right? This is the other challenge I've seen in Web3 is like, how do you set optimal supply? Is $1.50 the right price ceiling? Is burning one card the right price floor? Is that a lever you're going to be able to pull? Does Skyweavers have an answer to that? Or is that you think they just pick some numbers and they want to see how things play out? I think they picked $1.50 because I think Hearthstone was a dollar. My guess is they can change that $1.50 number and the whole market will shift with it. So they do have one thing. But at the end of the day, it's a bunch of extra steps to price each card at $1.50. So you think what you would get out of this situation, though, when you have Web3 and you have crypto is really just getting distribution effects, right? Who gets the card? Who wins the arena drafts? Who gets the money in the short run? That's right. But the interesting thing is the price variation on these cards is going to be minimal, like even less than what we in Magic or Hearthstone, where like, you know, a, like a playset of Tarmogoyfs is like 150 bucks, whereas in this game, like at most, these cards cost maybe $4. Do we know that in the marketplace? Yeah, yeah. If you look at the marketplace, the most expensive is probably like four fifteen. the last they checked. And the decks are all one-ofs. So even if one card is super expensive, you're only buying it once. So it's different for these rare cards. So I'm on the marketplace right now. For the commons, or for the silver, yeah, like 420 is the most expensive. But then I'm looking at gold. I'm assuming it's just like some sort of... 420. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> you California and Europeans. I live in Indiana right now, so... Oh, yeah. Stockholm is very conservative, my friend. Oh, surprised. Really? It's one of the things that shocks people the most. That's for a different podcast. Yeah. Stockholm, Sweden, just a very conservative place really? when it comes to drugs, when it comes to alcohol, when it comes to a lot of different things. Mm -hmm.
huge focus on the nuclear family. Yeah. Different podcast. <laughs> anyway, so these ones are literally 10x what the prices of the commons are. Kind of interested. Is that basically just a scarcity there? Like they're 10? It's scarcity. As far as I can tell, the advantage of the bold gold border is just one, cosmetic. You look cooler. And two, through some of the earning channels, like you get bonus points if you have more gold cards in your deck than silver. So it's a dividend payout, like those stake and earn that crypto has been doing. But for general play, it actually has no difference. I think it's mostly a scarcity thing right now. And I think a lot of the price is propped up by people speculating that these will be valuable because they have a restricted supply. I actually really like the model. I think it's really fascinating. It's a cool take on this like price control thing, which a lot of crypto companies try to do the price controls. I personally hate price controls, but I could see them. If you're allowing this competitive destruction of cards, that's interesting. I think that's really interesting. So I'd be curious to take a look closer. But to me, it seems like everybody gets access to every card or everybody has to buy a collection for $100 or whatever it is. If you want to go the free-to-play route, everybody gets all their cards. Or I guess it wouldn't be free-to-play. You have to pay a dollar to enter the tournament. If you win, you get $2 back. If you lose, you lose your dollar. The company is making every dollar on that. They're making all the dollars from the loss. It's just a tournament. Is this just a like more complicated way of running a tournament where there, there's, a, and it's not even, it's not even a, a zero sum game because the company makes money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think that's is the way like quote unquote play to earn will progress is that you don't distribute rewards to all your users. It's, it's just a tournament. Yeah. They also have a leaderboard where the top 100 or 1,000 players get weekly rewards. And frankly, that's been driving me to keep playing. Even though it's the reward is like $1.50, I want to get to where I'm making a $1.50 every week. Super layer not treating you well, Ark. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, that's fine. It's, you know I mean? But this is the thing about like game incentives, right? If I think of it as $1.50, this is a waste of my time. But if I think of it as a free silver card, I get way more excited. That makes a lot of sense to me, but I still have questions about this overall model. It makes sense to me that you would have some way to restrict supply because if demand's going to be what it is, you have to reach equilibrium somehow. Unless you just want P price to go down to zero and supply always to move outward. But if you're if you if there's no difference in the card that you can burn to get into these arena runs, why wouldn't it be the case that over time what you would see is natural rarity inflation? So you're you're always burning the least valuable card, and you're being rewarded with a card that is more rare than the one you burnt. And so that to me would at least suggest that average power level or rarity or however we want to measure that is constantly going up. Average rarity of cards owned. Yes, that's true. You, average average power level, I should say. Yeah, I don't think it's fair to say power level. It's it's more about which card is the most valuable. And I don't think that has to be correlated with any of those things. But I, I would guess that really this, this system does drive you towards some sort of equilibrium. To Chris's point, this is a beautiful, elegant way to create price stability. Even more beautiful in the fact that it's all through one system right? and have to have five different sources and sinks. It's just one, this arena game mode. I question a little bit whether this was the right goal. Like in card games, like the prices do vary quite a lot. Whereas in this game, it's like a dollar to four dollars, right? That feels pretty small. And frankly, like I feel like they could have achieved the same thing as just a Web 2 game. Just charge a dollar per card, right? And and maybe this is the kind of the crypto degen speaking, but I think a lot of the appeal of these market games is the market volatility, is the speculation. I'm playing this resource game and how do I optimize my return? And this puts a huge damper on it. I don't know. I, to me, this is... This is the promise of blockchain technology. I'm going, I'm playing this card game. I've got my deck that's got, how many cards do they do? 30? 30? Yeah, 25 to 30. 5 yeah. to 30 cards in my deck, and each one's worth $3. 
I've got a $75 deck. I literally can very easily go and sell those cards on the marketplace with very little friction. Like I've got a bunch of junk Yu-Gi-Oh cards because I'm not going to go through the hassle of selling those things. But I also don't want to give them away because they have some intrinsic value to me. Um, I don't play Yu-Gi-Oh anymore. But if there was like a super easy way for me to liquidate my cards and know that I could just get them right back if I wanted to, to me, that's a huge, that's, that is the promise, right? See? But see, that's, that to me is not much of a promise. So all it means is that I can press the refund on the arcade machine button and, and I can get my, 20, my quarter, my quarterback. That's all we got. on the other end of the transaction. I think it's cool. So but, you were but, buying but those Yu-Gi-Oh cards. Like your motivation was to play the game. You weren't thinking, oh, and also I can resell these or not. Yeah. I feel like that's always an after the fact consideration. Well, like, to, oh, to mom, yeah. moms and dads. Well, these are going to be worth a lot of money one day. I mean, that wasn't that the classic <laughs> response to spending copious amounts of Christmas money on Pokemon? I, I came, I came from like a traditional Christian family, so all Pokemon cards were burned because they were evil. Oh no! Uh, Wait, really? Yeah. Well, what's evil about them? I, I don't know because I was you, my, so my older Pikachu? brother had a Pokemon collection. I had a Yu-Gi-Oh collection, and if you don't know, Yu-Gi-Oh is way creepier than Pokemon. Like, why the fuck were the Pokemon card burned and the Yu-Gi-Oh cards survived? And the sad thing is the Yu-Gi-Oh cards are worth a hell of a lot less than the Pokemon cards would have been. Anyway. But here's what I'd at least argue for on the crypto side. Going back to our discussion, Chris, you put in a quarter. You put in a quarter, you get a quarter back. Was that really that compelling of an experience? I always go back to the monetization angle. And what I'm trying to think about is, are all of these market mechanics, and that's to me what we're bringing to games, all these market mechanics. So we have new challenges as game economists, as game economy designers, as monetization designers, whatever it may be. We have new challenges, which is that we not only have to manage you know, the actual assets, we have to manage supply, whereas beforehand we were managing price. And by managing supply, we are managing price. We're just one step removed. And so we have to face a lot of, I think, very difficult questions on how to set supply. And again, we were still facing those in the Web2 world. It's just we were facing them via price, a more direct way. And so the question is, is okay, then what is the optimal supply in Web3? Just as the question was, what is the optimal price in Web2? And of course, like that's a very complicated dynamic answer that I, I just don't think anyone's really started to research, right? What is the price elasticity of the market, right? That's what we're trying to measure to find profitable game companies. I think so this is something that this is I went at night thinking about this problem working at Star Atlas because we've got all these ships and it's and I'm constantly worried about there are too many ships for the number of players in the environment. Like how many ships should a person have? Should they have three? They don't need more than like this many. But also what if they just want to own a collection of a thousand ships? Do so it's I that is like so prescient because that is completely on the fourth, for me, it's one of the main concerns in daily life is, oh, we right now, oh, we want to raise some capital. Do we like drop some more ships? That's great. But at the same time, with every single addition of a ship in the ecosystem, if there's not like the equivalent growth in the economy from the, to justify those ships, there's consequences. Yeah. Like that to me is where marginal analysis really helps out, right? Is what is the value of an additional unit being released into the game economy? Mm -hmm. Does that increase total net aggregate present revenue? That was a whole, that was a whole mouthful. Does it increase the value of your game economy? Your game economy, that to me is something that I think you can use marginal analysis to make a decent assessment of. I was just going to say that that's why I love game economics, because that's a question you could never answer in the real world, but you're the god of the economies. You can look at every single thing and literally calculate that, that metric. It would be interesting to have the Austrians on. There is a lot in Austrian literature that will make their boots quake. And I would love to talk to some Austrian economists on this podcast about 
what we're doing is building a centrally planned economy. There's just no way not to build a centrally planned economy in a digital video game. You are crafting a particular experience when you craft an economy. You cannot avoid this. It is not, there are no natural things. There are no natural inputs. There are only artificial inputs you set. Yeah. Yeah, I've always leaned towards the, uh, that's the, the decentralization angle of crypto never meshed with me because working on League, I was like, yeah, I'm the central planner. I tell you how much you earn on a win or a loss. The, the one thing that they'll be happy about is that in these environments, we pretty much don't need like parametric estimation. It's like, it's not a parametric approach. So that's the one, one good thing they have for themselves that they'll uh, be able to sleep easy at night. Third article today, Chris, I believe it's one of your dissertation chapters from your newly minted dissertation. Yes. My defense was supposed to be 35 minutes, ended up going for an hour and 15 minutes. So I'm apparently not skilled in making this quick. Can we put your dissertation in the show notes? Can we link out? Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, no. I mean, it's just, it's just a PDF at this point. So oh, I think, I think our, our legions of fans already would love to read your dissertation. Oh, they're going to, they're going to, the chew vast it out. game economist community. So it's my second chapter is it's a stark contrast to the other chapters, which focus on labor market discrimination uh, using empirical data. The second chapter, however, is purely theoretical chapter with Ted Castronova, who's kind of one of them we've already talked about is the person who got me into this field. And it's one of the first papers, if not the only one to, to just try to show firm behavior, competitive firm behavior in a, in a digital media firm or a digital media market. So when I say digital media, technically the model would work for like a social media website, like Twitter or LinkedIn. But we, we obviously focus on video games because it's much more interesting. And the monetization there is not just ads. So we walk through a couple of different models, but it all builds off of this baseline model that says a firm has to decide on some quality and some price to set. and they're subject to this constraint that the number of players, the attention of the players is a function of those two things. So as the price increases, players leave. As the quality increases, players come in. So it's classic optimization problem. You've got your production function, you've got your constraint. And so equilibrium is where those two things touch. The baseline model is actually pretty straightforward. It just says that there's some optimal quantity and there's some optimal price or fee for the game. If you're talking about a premium yeah, you know, that players are willing to, enough players are willing to come in such that profits are optimized or maximized, subject to constraint. So obviously we get much more interesting. We talk about a play to earn model, a free to play model, and, and a couple of other models, but the kind of primary ones I want to talk about are the free to play and the play to earn. So the way we change for the free to play is we say, okay, there's two prices. There's the price from before. You can think of like God of War as a premium game, obviously. So you pay this 60 bucks and you can play God of War. And a free-to-play game here is ambiguous. It could be zero. Q, however, is a positive price and it's an optional price. And you can pay Q to get a different version of the game. So you can get a different, and I'm saying Q and P. You can pay this optional fee to get a better quality of the game. So if you pay the regular fee, P in this case, you're just going to get like you know, game version zero. If you pay this optional fee, you're going to get a really better version. You can think of it as any free-to-play model. You can think of this as DLC. P could be 60 and Q could be 60 bucks for DLC. You're just paying for a better version. So in this model, what you're going to find is that there's this, there's this summative price that is basically P plus Q. That's like the summative price that somebody would pay. And in equilibrium, P in this case could be negative or zero as long as Q is big enough because the summative price is P plus Q. So if Q is quite large, P could technically be negative as long as it's not negative larger than Q. So basically we end up with this model where the summative price that the firm gets is positive. They don't care. 
But there's actually a zero price for the main price. And the optional price is so big. You could think about a whales and minnows problem. You could think about advertising fee. Investors are paying this queue to the firm and oodles of money. So there are a whole bunch of different ways to think about this. But so that that's the free-to-play model. And when I saw this P equals zero, Ted had written in there very subtly, P could also be negative. And that's where I came in and uh, started that I wrote the play-to-earn model. Uh, which basically takes this queue, it gets away from two different fee structures, the like regular game and the really good game. It just says, now the price to play the game is strictly negative. The price to play the game, you're always going to make money when you play the game. And this, you can think of an NFT having some quality. You go into the game, get the NFT, you can sell it on a secondary marketplace. You know, what that price is is completely, we're not going to try and talk about, we're not going to try and estimate actual nominal prices, but the idea is that the firm instead of having to decide what price and what quality to sell their game for, now decides how many shares of the, of the game, you can think of these as NFTs, um, and I'm going to assume some knowledge from our, from our audience here. But the firm now is, instead of setting a price, they're now setting a supply. They're issuing NFTs. So now they're, in, they're intrinsically setting the price, but they're more so influencing the price with the issuance of the, of the, of the, of the asset in this case. So instead of the players paying a fee for a game, now they're getting paid for the assets in that game. And the firm makes money by selling those assets on the secondary market. They're going to retain some of those for themselves. They're going to sell them to make their money. And they're going to, players are going to be trading back and forth. We abstract away from the player's market, the secondary market. And we just try to think about what is this, what does this fee look like if it's negative? Um, so it's a crazy model. So yeah, so you're talking about how like, Rather than pricing on price, you're pricing on quantity, right? You're not saying this costs $10. You're saying we're going to put 10,000 of these in circulation. And uh, so this might be like bread and butter for economist literature, but there's this thing I remember Glenn Weil put me on a while back, which is if you compare this to, let's say, uh, carbon emissions policy, carbon taxes versus cap and trade, right? A carbon tax is a price-based policy, which says we know how much damage a ton of carbon causes to the environment, so we're going to price the tax accordingly. Whereas the cap and trade says we actually don't know and, and let's say there's some critical threshold where if too much carbon is emitted, the whole planet dies. We're like, okay, I don't know how to price this on a dollar, but I do know if we emit, you know, like emit too much carbon, we're fucked. So I will cap the quantity as opposed to setting a price. And depending on what your uncertainty is about the costs, right? Whether if you're very certain that, oh, every unit of carbon costs a dollar. And so we can price the tax there, then, you know, that the price-based policy works better. And so going back to games, right? If you, if it's like a unit economics thing where, oh, every shoe I make costs me $5 to make. So I know I should price them at $10 because I got to cover my costs. Using price makes a lot more sense. Whereas if you're uncertain about the value, which is often the case with digital goods, quantity can sometimes make more sense. But when I look at it at the end of the day, what you observe is equilibrium price. The supply and demand curve is not something that you really observe in a static piece in time, right? This always goes back to the epistemological problems of the economics model is, okay, I look at a supply and demand curve, what am I looking at? And usually what you're looking at is you're looking at a point in time. You're not looking at any time series variable. But when you can observe something, what you're observing is equilibrium price, which is supposed to be where that intersection of supply and demand are. So what I would argue back to you is, to your point, you can use each of those variables to change equilibrium price. You can use cap and trade, and you can change you can change permits, and you can change the total amount of uh, permits that people have, or you can change the price. But to your point, they achieve different things, right? Because cap and trade gets you a fixed quantity, and a Pogovian tax does not get you a fixed quantity. You can design a Pogovian tax that approximates 
a fixed amount of supply, but you have to know a lot about elasticity to be able to use the Bacovian tax to do that. Cap and trade will definitely get you a supply ceiling of carbon. So the original model that I tried to write for the free to play or for the play to earn was keeping that P and Q concept. So basically the player participates in some sort of lottery or some sort of tournament. Some players are good players and some players are bad players or winners and losers. And the winners P and the losers pay Q. So in this case, P could potentially be negative if Q was higher. You could you can imagine a market where the majority of people are losers. Twitch is this way, right? Like streamers, only the best of the best of the best streamers and esports ever make it anywhere or any sport for, for that matter. A bunch of other players, a bunch of other people pay this huge cost, they, this huge fee, and they don't end up getting anywhere. I know plenty of people who went to play college sports ended up, they probably ended up costing them. The opportunity cost was probably by the time they're done with their life in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. So I almost see it like that, where you have, a, you have this like hyper-skilled tournament that happens. The expected wage for the, for the winners was sufficiently high. No, I just think about wage rates as playing a game. Like I, I derive a certain amount of utility from playing a game. That's my wage rate. And whether or not that wage rate is realized in terms of fiat currency, to me, is completely secondary. It just changes the integer. So I play Overwatch. I get $10 an hour in terms of utility. That's my relative opportunity cost. If you hired me somewhere for $11 an hour, I would quit Overwatch and I would go do that other thing. I always think about this implicit wage rate when I just think about Playdoor and it changes that integer value for some, for some users. So do we, get, do we get predictable, do we get testable hypothesis out of the model you described? Like what would be an example of some testable hypothesis that would fall out of the PQ firm decision? Yeah. So, so testable, the testable there, that would be like going into a look at a firm's income statement. You would see what's coming in, what's going out, what are people playing or paying zero? What are the microtransactions queue? So the model there is just that P is lower in a free-to-play model than it is in a premium model. One of the things for the free-to-play model is that people are less sensitive to a change in price than in the premium model, as you might imagine, right? So the attention of the players in equilibrium in the premium model are very sensitive to the change in price P, whereas in the free-to-play model, they're not as sensitive to P or Q. What, what drives the relative inelasticity in the free-to-play environment versus the more elastic behavior in the premium fixed price game model? So we were talking about the fact that when you're operating in this premium fixed price world, players are fairly elastic. They respond strongly to price, whereas when we think about free-to-play game, you suggested that one of the testable hypotheses that come out of this is that those players are far less price elastic and they don't change their quantity demanded in response to a price change very much. Sorry, I was a very long-winded elasticity thing. So, so I mean, if in terms of the actual explanation, it's that like the median fee is lower, but the average fee is higher. That the average player is paying a higher fee and the because you're price discriminating when you do a free-to-play model. So you're increasing the willingness, the average willingness to spend, but the median willingness has actually gone down. So that, you're literally changing kind of the distribution of spending. Don't we need to assume in these worlds, though, that we're holding all else constant? So shouldn't I imagine like the same distribution of, let's say, willingness to pay between a particular product? Like we could imagine Candy Crush as a fixed price game, and we can imagine Candy Crush as a free-to-play game. Do we think that willingness to pay is exogenous from the game experience or that would change materially once you're in the experience? So I, I think it's really just about where we are. We were talking about equilibrium price before. It's where we are on the, on the demand curve. And this was something that I, I remember in my, one of my undergrad classes, the professor was, is the demand curve more or less inelastic as prices, as prices increase? 
And I was like, oh, the, the elasticity of demand is the same no matter where you are on the demand curve. But I got the question wrong because elasticity depends on the price. It's a relative price elasticity. So I think, I think my, I, I maybe need to think about this harder, but my initial response is that because the price is like the average price is higher, there's probably less elasticity in, in the response because that price is higher. Like, okay, so higher. it's almost like a math trick, though. It can be a math trick based on like just the fact that the the numerator, excuse me, that the min and max value have such large integer value ranges, right? Yeah, it's, it's always a math, Interesting. math trick. But yeah, cool question. So maybe there's a way to model this, but what, I think a lot of free to play games benefit from network effects, right? The more people that are playing Rocket League, the more fun the game is. So even if each individual user has their demand curve, like that curve changes depending on the aggregate demand. Oh, I, I assume, you know, that's like uh, complex for this model. I probably just assume that it doesn't affect it. But how would you actually model that? Like, So when I said there are a couple of other models that I won't talk about, that's one of them. I'm actually not like 100% convinced on, on our model. I like to think of this paper as like the first attempt at doing this and basically a call to action for other people to start looking at this kind of stuff. You think about how many discrimination models are out there. It's statistical discrimination versus prejudice taste-based discrimination. But there's going to be more models that come out. There's nothing to explain games, right? Because we don't see this behavior, it feels like, in any other medium except we see this free-to-play purchase behavior. This is a model that is specific to games, it feels like. There's a few other services that are doing this. Yeah, and I argue that the space is becoming so impactful economically. We just saw FTX. And I know that's the greater crypto like e ecosystem, but play-to-earn, like, blockchain games have a big impact. And I think that the, fin the financialization of in-game economies will have a larger impact. And it's going to bring more people. It's going to bring people on extensive margin into the space, right? All these people who didn't play games before started playing free-to-play games. And all these people who don't play games now are going to start playing free-to-earn. It's growing the space, and it's also just increasing connectivity between financial institutions and games. So I hope that with that shift, we'll see more interest in this space. But who knows? Economists are very slow. Academic economists are very slow to move in terms of following the times. It's why we're here. It's why we're here at the Game Economist cast. But I think to your point, Eric, I think you can think about the network effects as just a positive externality, right? When you think about an individual player's utility curve, you would have an N variable in there that is monotonically increasing. It's the size of the player base, right? And you would model that as a diminishing return because the millionth player isn't as valuable to your network as the first. So, so but I'm very skeptical about the shape of that curve. Oh, yeah. It's a complicated problem. In terms of our model, the sensitivity of players to price and quality are greater in the network effects model. Because now when the quality goes down, somebody leaves. But now that decreases my utility because somebody left. So it's this, this compounding effect. So sensitivity to price and quality are higher those in that model. So that, that, that seems like another super interesting predictable hypothesis coming out of this. So let's think about MMOs. We think about MMOs as like a classic networking case. There's a lot of very strong social features, certainly more than a game like Candy Crush. Would your model predict that those types of experiences, I guess what it would be, it would be potentially a slow ascent and a slow decline, right? If there are network effects. With, with network effects? So, so it depends on, the, the all, it depends on marketing spend is, right? A lot of this depends on marketing spend. Yeah. Let's just assume marketing spend is constant. Would your model predict that MMOs would grow fast and decline slowly, or would they grow slowly and decline slowly, or fast, fast? Those the, are our options. With network effects, those economies grow faster. And I'm trying to think of trying to think of an example. I mean, the way that it works is, say, you've got a thousand people playing a game, um, 
if there's no network effects, when the quality goes down, 10 of them leave. With their, when there are network effects, the quality goes down. And so are you asking about what is that cascade? Is it like a nuclear reaction where like 10 people leave, but those 10 people impact to 10 other people and those 10 people is this degenerative equilibrium? I don't know. Certainly the model doesn't get that, but it is an interesting, that's a super interesting question. And that's a key. Like what is the difference elasticity with, with no network effects versus network effects? And you can do experiments. And I think there's a lot of explanatory behavior for a model like that when we think about what's happening on the App Store leaderboards. And again, I'm skeptical about the results that a lot of people tend to report. If you take it at face value, the apps or the games that have been, let's say, the top 100 grossing are becoming increasingly, I don't guess, what did you say? There's a lot of staying power. They aren't moving. It's the same games every single year. It's becoming more and more frozen in stone. There's less new entrants into the top grossing charts. Mm -hmm. You might be able to argue that's a function of some sort of networking effect. It's yeah. just very hard to get people away from these networks and these games. Interesting. But you're saying there's like a cost to leaving right. as well. Just as a benefit of having a friend there. Well, well, if N, if N is really big and N is a part of your utility curve, mm -hmm. and if N is really, really big, then if I leave, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that on the table. And firms' ability to produce quality is also a factor. If you assume there's big heterogeneity in there or that quality is cumulative. Yeah. We definitely see this in live service games. They're way more winner takes all than box titles. And that's Game Economist episode one in the can. See you guys next week.